Everyday Sublime, a podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. I have a small bit of news before we start today's episode. I wanted to let you know that I created a series of reflections that serve as an overview to the essential themes of yin yoga. This series is based on many of the most common questions I receive from students in my training programs. It's free to all new subscribers, so if you just sign up for my email newsletter, I can start to email them to you. You'll get them automatically about once a week. To sign up, simply go to joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe, and as a bonus, you'll get access to two practice videos, one sequence that focuses on the spine and one sequence for the hips. I'm very excited to share this material with you my listeners, and I hope that the videos and reflections will continue to support your practice and understanding of yin yoga. And now for today's episode, the third installment of my interview with Matthew Remsky. Matthew is a yoga teacher and author whose new book, Practice and All is Coming, explores abuse in yoga culture, specifically sexual and physical assault in the community of Ashtanga yoga. The themes of power abuse toxic group dynamics, and victim blaming are all important themes for anyone who occupies the space of a yoga mat or a meditation cushion in the modern yoga landscape. In this installment of the interview, Matthew sheds light on how attachment styles may contribute to problematic group dynamics. He also considers ways the broader yoga community can support the survivors, and more broadly, what reform might look like as yoga culture moves forward. And as a gentle recommendation for listening, please practice self-care. If you need to pause or to take a break while listening, please do that. But I thank you for your attention and for listening today. And now, once again, I bring you Matthew Remsky. Let's have another conversation about what people actually end up believing. I mean, I, th- I thought that part in the book was great. And you also, from, from there, you then expand into a uh, analysis of sort of structural systemic conditions that do kind of disorient and confuse and, and even create this kind of vertiginous internal phenomenology for the person right. that, that makes it very difficult to, to see, see one way or the other. Right, right. And I think, you know, I really have uh, the work of Alexandra Stein to thank for that because she uses this basic, um, so just a caveat here, when, when we talk about the psychology of the person who's victimized by a cult, it's not to say that, you know, there was something inside them that made them more vulnerable. The deception is the threshold, and then there are psychological processes that can take over that make recruitment easier, dependency easier, dread of leaving easier. Uh, But what she says is that, you know, the main thing that the cult does is it rewires your way of relating to people, to everyone really, towards the end of the attachment spectrum known as disorganized, where you're actually in a constant state of love and fear of approaching but withdrawing 
of going to a person for love who you know on some level is also hurting you but you feel dependent upon. And one of the things that she says this creates is this this amazing, uh, I mean, I say it's amazing, it's awful, but it's amazing to me because it, 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 it articulates my own cult experience so well. Uh, she describes a triple isolation in which, you know, you're isolated from the outside world. You're not, you're not, you know, you've lost your old friends probably, or you've written them off, or they're not enlightened enough for you, or you're just separated from them because you're in an ashram or something. Uh, and then you're isolated also from people within the group, because there are certain things that are taboo to talk about. And in the Ashtanga world, you know, you couldn't say uh, around the breakfast table at Mysore, he sexually assaulted me. Or if you tried to, you'd be told, oh, no, that's not what it was. And then that second layer of isolation leads to a kind of internal isolation from your own moral sense, where it's like, you know, you had values that helped you navigate the world. You had a compass that was a shining light for you. Um, but, but now it's kind of broken or it's been occluded and, and, you know, the wisdom of the group, the wisdom of the group has entered in and has kind of overwhelmed, uh, what, what, what you've been able to decide for yourself in terms of your moral values throughout your life. So that triple isolation is like this amazing, this amazing idea. You're, you're with other people, but you're totally all alone at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the only person who really is the reality principle is the leader is Mr. Joyce is Mr. Iyengar is, you know, perhaps Manuso Manos. In right, my case, right. it was in my case, it was Michael Roach at the Asian Classics Institute or Charles Anderson at, at Endeavor Academy. Like the guy, that guy was was the reality principle. They have all the answers. Right. Right. And that's part of and that's part of what what, you know, that's part of what what alienates you from your own, even your will to to uh, propose an alternative or to ask questions, which, of course, you're not allowed to do. Right. No, yeah. I, th I thought the, the 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 inclusion of attachment theory there was was pretty helpful um, yeah. for for just for shifting the, the kind of the blame on the victim and or the blame on the on the uh, on the the leader too. Right, right, yeah. It's it's a system. They're working together. I don't, you know, when it comes down to it, and I I would like people to just reflect on the fact that you know you have no idea who Jim Jones was. You have no idea what was going on in, you know, Chogyam Trungpa's head. You have no idea what what the inner life of Bikram Chowdhury is. Like the what is it called? The Eisenhower rule or the the what psychiatrists came up with in the 1950s where they, they sort of self-imposed. They're starting to break it with Trump now. All right. But a lot of professional clinicians are like have this self-imposed rule that they're not going to diagnose people that they're not in clinical practice with. Um but I think that's a really sound, sound principle is that you don't know what's, I don't know what's going on in Patabi Joyce's head. I, I don't know what his, his internal constellation is like. Uh, I don't, I, I've, I've spent two years interviewing Karen Rain. I feel like I know her a, a lot better than I know him, but I still wouldn't presume to know why she, 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 she makes choices that she does that all of that intentionality, all of that speculation on people's internal states, it you, what it usually does is it overshadows the fact that a crime has been committed, and we can obviously set up ways of, of preventing it from happening again. Mm -hmm. 
I know we're, we're closing in on your time a bit, and I do want to get into maybe the path ahead. You know what? Right. Because you, I know you hold that intention in the book of of offering some sort of roadmap forward with better practices. Right. Um, what? So one of the things that, I, as a teacher myself, and I, I visit other, I, I do trainings in various yoga studios, and uh, one thing that's come up for me is that I still I've had some studios on my on my schedule that still have photographs of Patabi Joyce in their their sort of altar corner of the studio. And there haven't been, uh, to my satisfaction, statements of distancing and denouncing and, and separation and all that. And I have to say, I'm deeply gratitude, a lot of gratitude to you for your work, because it's helped me sort through how to engage with that. And I, you know, and but one of the things that's come up for me in trying to talk about it with these hosts and these other studios is um, it's hard to escape a little bit the the idea of uh, or the dynamic of virtue signaling where you kind of come off pious or sanctimonious like look you you know you have this and you have this photograph up and it's you're silencing victims and doing it you're part of an institutional enablement and I think that's really all important to say but it it it, it actually hasn't gone very well for me with these, right. these places that I, I get labeled as being judgmental, um, not understanding them and not letting them handle it in their own way. And um, so, you know, yeah, you know, you know, but you don't have to do that work because the survivors have done it for you, really. Like uh, Karen Rain and Jubilee Cook published this amazing, I hope this goes into the show notes, but this amazing essay on Yoga International that uh, the title is something like, What Do Survivors of Sexual Abuse in Yoga Communities Need? And it's it's like a white paper mm-hmm. that basically lays it out and says, look, here we are. We're two sexual assault survivors of a 20th century yoga master. And this is how this is what happened to us. And this is how we feel about what will create safety and respect, not only for us, but for students going forward. And, you know, I think anybody who reads through that and, you know, and there are stuff around, there's stuff around, you know, don't venerate, you know, people who are people who are uh, sexual assaulters or rapists. Um, that's not safe for the people who come to your studio. You know, you have to make a distinction between people that you love because you love them and people who are triggering to to uh, your students. I mean, that's just that's basic adulting for for one thing. But anyway, sh- you know, their their list of the things that you can do is all laid out for you. And I don't think you have to be worried about virtue signaling by referring to what survivors of sexual assault need. I mean, that's, I mean, to me, virtue signaling is, you know, some sort of opportunistic uh, self-aggrandizement based upon associating yourself with, with, uh, you know, a, a fashionable social cause, but you're not getting anything out of those confrontations if you're trying to teach there. So, so I don't, I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't, and as far as like being judgmental goes, um, I mean, well, it's asking, asking for basic justice and respect isn't, isn't judgmental. Um, what's, what's, what's judgmental or perhaps the better word is just inept is to continue to, um, keep your head in the sand about what the person that you love did to people. You can still love him, but it doesn't mean that you have to, um, uh, you, you have to venerate him or, or, or say that he was somebody that he wasn't in public terms. 
you know? I think the whole notion of the veneration of the photograph is so difficult for so many people because there was an intensity with which he would gaze at them or, or they would gaze at him. And often that would happen within the context of adjustments. And I believe that if, if in some cases, if those portraits on those altars are, are looked at from just the right angle, the person might go, oh my God, actually, he's not who I thought I was, who he was after all. It's almost as if the, the portrait will stay on the altar to preserve something that if it cracks, will crack the entire world along with it. And that's a tough place to be in. I would acknowledge it. But if you're running a public space uh, and and people who are sexual assault survivors are going to it and they can Google Patabi Joyce's name and, and you know, this, that story is the first thing that comes up, how are they going to feel safe? Mm-hmm. And how are you how are they going to feel as though you're not, you know, somehow excusing or aiding and abetting or minimizing or or just not caring about sexual assault? That doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. And if one in four women are have have are survivors of sexual assault, and it's probably higher than that, do you really want to, like, almost emotionally haze or gaslight a quarter of your potential practice population? It doesn't make any sense. Um. So yeah, I mean, I mean, my my main point is that is that you don't have to do that work because it's already been done for you in, in rain and cooks essay. And so that's really cool. I, that came across my desk a, a little while ago. And I, I did, I did pre- very much appreciate that. And it, well, it's more, I feel like if I'm going to these places, like I'm, I'm coming in not as a, a regular teacher, I'm coming in for a workshop or a training. Um, right. I feel like if I'm going to a, a place that still venerates, but a Joyce type figure that, in some ways, my my showing up is is complicit with this this network of complicity. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's a hard. That's a hard one, right? I mean, I mean, it's you, you'd have to make some personal choices around whether whether you're using that that privilege, the the you know the the, the fees that you're getting from the training to you know push back against that idealization. Um, yeah, that's going to be there's going to be a lot of calculations in there. Yeah, um, there's you know there's 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 people who are at certain points in their, you know, career where they can say, well, I'm not going to work with so-and-so anymore and they can make that public and that will be very, very effective. Uh, and they won't hurt because of it financially. But, you know, I think people who, um, are, are in different financial circumstances might find it more effective to, uh, preserve the relationship with their Ashtanga Yoga Shala hosts, uh, than to sever it all together and to and to slowly encourage them to change. So, you know, those are really those are individual choices for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, within Ashtanga world in general, are, what reforms do you, movements do you see happening, and what what gives you a sense of hope? Looking forward, um, you know. The the reform so far has been strong in some areas in the zone of sentiment uh, rather than action, but that's going to take a long time. It's not like it won't. It's not not going to happen. I'm sure. I'm sure things will improve. But um, you know, when you ask me that question, I think of uh, an amazing accountability statement made by Sarai Harvey Monk, who was uh, authorized by Sharath Joyce. Um, sometime in the 2010s, something like that. 
And, you know, she laid out this five point, you know, this is how my participation in this organization is, you know, is complicit with this abuse history. And here are the five things that I'm going to do now in my classes to make sure that I, I don't carry any of those impacts on. Um, there have been a couple of other statements like that, but hers is a real standout. Um, there is, uh, there's a guy named uh, Guy Donahay who actually was the co-editor uh, with Eddie Stern of a very uh, popular book in 2012 called Guruji, which uh, I describe in my book and I criticize it very, very closely and, and heavily as being a hagiography of Joyce that was published with the cultural knowledge of what was being left out. So. Um, he, Guy, is the co-editor. Eddie Stern is the other editor. But Guy has gone on kind of like this solo uh, truth and reconciliation tear on his blog. And he's published a lot of really beautiful pieces about that are basically what the heck were we doing? What did we overlook? Who did we not listen to? What does Karen Rain have to say? How can I make this up to her? Like he's doing an amazing amount of public, vulnerable um, uh, accountability work. And, uh, he recently also, uh, sponsored a petition, uh, that's on Facebook trying to get Ashtanga certified and authorized teachers, uh, to, um, uh, make accountability statements. That's moving kind of slowly, uh, because I think there's a lot of fear around, uh, the control that the family still has over the, the finances and the copyrights and, or, not the, or at least the, at least the, 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 the ability to practice uh, or to teach the the, the method, uh, quote unquote, legally or with the validation of of the family. So um, that's that's moving that's moving slowly. And then on the logistic or the sort of material front, there is a group uh, that's in formation, and I think it's called the Amayu Collective. And two of its leads are Scott Johnson from London in the UK, uh, and then Greg Nardi from Orlando or Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And um, they're uh, coordinating with uh, a few other second-generation Ashtanga teachers. Um, and uh, so it's a young group, I think about five. Uh, and one of them isn't a teacher. I think her name is Emma. She's actually a, she's a, she's a, I think she's a women's studies professor in Southern England somewhere. And she's a student and, and I think she's also an educational specialist. Uh, and I think this group of five people are putting together a kind of alternative training program to what's on offer through Sharath Joyce and KPJAYI. So, um, I don't think that has really gotten off the ground yet. There's a lot of aspirations involved there. Uh, I know that the group will have some challenges with diversity, with inclusion, and also, um, you know, I, I would say that they probably have to make sure, do a better job of making sure that they're professionally cult, um, um, sorry, professionally consulting with survivors like Karen Rain and Annika Lucas and Jubilee Cook, uh, because I think that's essential. Like a reform movement, any reform movement that isn't asking uh, Joyce's survivors exactly what to do and exactly what they need and exactly what they would have needed to keep safe is not really a reform movement at all. And in yoga in large, I know yoga is kind of like the wild, wild west of, of uh, industries. Right. What kind of reform, I mean, I know you mentioned things like uh, more more of a consent culture in terms of adjustments and right. scope of practice 
considerations. What right. around that? What would you like to see see moving forward? Well, uh, the last part of my book um, is is a is a is written as a workbook for the yoga teacher training industry, and um, it summarizes the analysis of the Joyce event and and the cult literature that I use. Um, and I try to lay out a number of tools that I think I'm not an expert in this, but I think will be helpful as teachers, students, and administrators and yoga service providers and yoga academics as well go forward in figuring out how to identify toxic group dynamics. So um, there's tools in there, uh, and the the tools are accompanied by uh, like personal essay questions for review. Um, So there's something in there called the PRISM method. There's eight best practices for, um, for avoiding cultic dynamics. Um, there is also, as you mentioned, a scope of practice for the yoga humanities that I think, uh, would be a good idea. And it's something that yoga Alliance may, um, uh, adopt in part, not because I wrote it or anything, but because it's in the air now they're doing a, a renovation of their standards after 19 years. Um, and scope of practice or defining a scope of practice for a yoga teacher is uh, a keystone of that effort. And that's super important because uh, one of the reasons that Joyce was allowed to be who he was is that nobody gave him any limits. Uh, and, you know, he was given kind of free reign to pontificate about every aspect of a person's life, you know, so it's not just that he was teaching people asana, that he was also telling them to stop taking their medication, or he was telling them that their backs, their back didn't need surgery, or, you know, he was giving them spiritual advice, perhaps, or, or what have you. So, um, nobody, it's, it's like the modern yoga movement has been built on the charismatic personalities that did not have a scope of practice because it was thought or they assumed they could do anything. And that is about to get, um, checked. Yeah. There's a rude Uh, awakening coming. And that's a, and that's a really, and that's a really good thing. Like if you've trained as an asana teacher, let's stay in our lane. Uh, let's not give dietary advice. Let's not pretend you're a marriage counselor. Let's not start talking about the chakras, you know, let's not, or whatever, uh, let, right. Let's not, let's not, um, give psychological advice or talk about people's medications. Um, and, um, and also let's not, let's not BS about history and philosophy either. Uh, because, um, you know, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear, and, and I want to cite my, my colleague Theo Wildcroft for coming up with this analogy. It's becoming increasingly clear that, um, you know, yoga teachers are not physiotherapists. They're not going to be trained to take care of your subluxated disc in your back. They're not going to be trained to fix your labral tear. Um, now, that's new, but people are becoming more aware of that. What what the public is less aware of is that it's fairly easy for your run-of-the-mill yoga teacher to manipulate a whole class of people intellectually and then psychologically by claiming that they know more about yoga philosophy than they actually do. So, um, so, so one of these tools that I offer in the sixth part is you know, are you really clear as a yoga teacher about what the limits of your humanities knowledge is? Are you, or are you giving people the impression 
that you know what yoga philosophy says when actually very few people know what or understand uh, the, the the depth and breadth of yoga philosophy. So so I hope those I hope those are I hope those are helpful ideas, uh, and I hope that and I hope that people are able to begin to look at the communities that they live in a little bit more critically, look at the kind of leadership that they have a little bit more critically, uh, and then start modeling that critical thinking. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's some great, great direction forward. But um, look, it's been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm really super appreciative of the work you're doing. I know it's, it's tough sledding. I see you. I follow you also in the comment threads, and you're, you're, you've rolled up your sleeves. The, the knuckles are out, and it's bit of a knife fight in there, but you're fighting the good fight. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, that concludes my interview with Matthew Remsky. And given the nature of these topics, I strongly recommend going slowly through this material. There's a lot to process and to metabolize. But there are a few resources that I recommend. I highly recommend picking up a copy of Matthew's book, Practice and All is Coming. Matthew's publisher extended a 15% discount to members of my audience, and that discount code, which is SUMMERS15, is in the show notes along with a direct link to where you can purchase Matthew's book. Also, two of the survivors featured in Matthew's book, Karen Rain and Jubilee Cook, have written a great article on how to respond to sexual abuse in yoga culture. Their article is published on Yoga International's site, and there's a link for that piece in the show notes too. I really recommend looking at that. Now, I know the material Matthew describes is challenging, but it's vital that yoga culture at large become knowledgeable and empowered for how best to respond and move forward. So thank you again for your attention and listening to this subject. Next up on the podcast, I'll be sharing my interview with Dr. Timothy McCall. Timothy is the medical editor of For Yoga Journal and also the author of the best-selling book, Yoga as Medicine. A few years ago, Timothy was diagnosed with stage four tonsillar cancer, and he wrote an excellent memoir called Saving My Neck, which details his course of treating his cancer with the best of Eastern and Western medical approaches. And I really look forward to sharing that conversation with you soon. Now, as a parting reminder, if you'd like to receive your free access to my Essentials of Yin Yoga program, just head over to my website, www.joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. That's www.joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And all of that material will soon be yours. Thanks so much for listening today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.